Welcome to today's episode of Health Tree Podcast for AML, a podcast that connects patients with acute myeloid leukemia researchers. I'm your host, Kara Thayman. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Bristol Myers Squibb, for their support of this Health Tree Podcast for AML episode. Before we get started with today's show, I'd like to mention an upcoming event that we will be hosting. This Saturday, October 8th, from 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Central Time, we will be hosting a virtual Health Tree Roundtable for AML with MD Anderson. We have invited six top AML experts from MD Anderson to join us, and they will cover the following topics. Treatment in younger and older patients, maintenance therapy, evaluating MRD status, stem cell transplantation, new and emerging therapies, and supportive care during treatment. We will hear from the experts on each topic, and there will be a Q&A session at the end. We hope you will join us for this informative discussion. If you can't attend live, we encourage you to still register, as the recording will be sent out after the event to everyone who registers. You can register for all of our events by visiting our website, healthtree.org slash AML slash community slash events. As a reminder for today's show, if you have joined us online and would like to be able to ask Dr. Hobbs a question during our Q&A period at the end, you will need to call in via telephone to 515-602-9728 and press 1 on your keypad when you are ready to ask your question. And now, on to our show today. Allogeneic stem cell transplantation remains the curative option for patients with acute myeloid leukemia. However, relapse after transplant poses a significant challenge and is an area where continued research and clinical trials are needed. The challenge is a very difficult balancing act between promoting the graft graft versus leukemia effect, or GVL, and reducing graft versus host disease, or GVHD. There are a number of different novel therapies being explored in trials in order to reduce the risk of relapse after stem cell transplantation. One of those trials that we will hear about today is a trial using the drug Jacify or Ruxolitinib, and Dr. Gabriella Hobbs is here with us today to discuss this clinical trial. Dr. Hobbs will also share with us some of the other therapies that are currently being used and tested in this area. We are so happy to have you here with us today, Dr. Hobbs, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. Before we get started, I'd love to provide an introduction for you, Dr. Hobbs. Dr. Hobbs is the Clinical Director of the Leukemia Service at Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center in Boston. She specializes in the care of patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms, or NPN, chronic myeloid leukemia, and leukemia. Dr. Hobbs is an active clinical researcher and leads the MPN research program at Massachusetts General. She is the principal investigator on a number of active clinical trials, and her work has been published in many prestigious journals. Welcome, Dr. Hobbs. We are honored to have you on the show with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Of course. Thank you for being here with us today. Okay, so let's jump into our discussion for today. I wanted to start with just some some basic questions about uh, stem cell transplant. Can you tell us uh, what a stem cell transplant is, and is there a difference between a bone marrow transplant and a stem cell transplant? Great question, and always good to start from the beginning. So 
Um, the term stem cell transplant or bone marrow transplant are generally used interchangeably, um, although there are some, some subtle differences. So a stem cell transplant is basically um, a form of treating a variety of cancers, including leukemias um, and sometimes lymphomas as well as myelomas, to, to treat the, the, the cancer in a different way. So basically, instead of just giving chemotherapy, a transplant is a form of immunotherapy where you're giving um, the patient somebody else's blood-forming capacities and immune system uh, as a way of being able to recognize and hopefully attack and cure a patient of leukemia. And then in terms of the difference between bone marrow transplant and stem cell transplant, a bone marrow transplant is when the person that is donating bone marrow literally has a lot of their bone marrow taken out. And generally those patients need to go to the operating room to have several bone marrow biopsies to get the liquid um, part of the, of the bone marrow uh, collected to be able to give to the patient. When we talk about stem mm -hmm. cell transplant, we're talking about what's called a peripheral blood stem cell transplant. And for that, the person that is donating is usually given a medication, such as um, a growth factor, to produce lots and lots of stem cells in the bone marrow. And those stem cells kind of spill over into the blood and can then be collected from the peripheral blood. But in general, when a patient is, is told, you know, you will need a bone marrow transplant, so you will need a stem cell transplant, those terms generally are interchangeable. Okay, and is it fair to say that the majority of those stem cell transplants are taking the peripheral, taken from the peripheral blood these days? Correct. Yeah, so you can imagine that it's harder to get participants to agree to being donors um, if they know they need to be, you know, taken to the operating room and have lots and lots of biopsies and also just even the providers that are collecting the biopsies, it's much harder. Um, so it's much easier for the donor to just um, do the peripheral blood stem cell transplant. So once that was kind of discovered and we could do it that way, um, that's definitely become the preferred modality. Yeah, that ma that makes sense. I think there there has been quite a push uh, from organizations like Be the Match to communicate that it is it is in a very invasive process, maybe like it used to be, um, for people to donate uh, their stem cells. Um, okay, can you talk briefly about the different factors that are weighed in determining if a patient is a candidate for a stem cell transplant, and are there other health conditions, I guess what they would call comorbidities, that would make having a stem cell transplant not possible for someone? Yeah, so that's a great question, and one that I think has changed a lot over the last decade. So whereas before, basically, a patient would be a candidate for a stem cell transplant if they were very young, um, like 30s, and for a while, probably not even older than that. Now we really consider patients for transplantation that are in their 70s. And, and many times we even try not to think about age as much. And so I think the factors that we take into account are in determining if somebody's a candidate for transplant have really changed. Um, and, and part of that is because we can use different amounts of chemotherapy before the transplant, and that really makes a big difference in making the transplant more tolerable. 
And so kind of a roundabout way to answer your question, but although we certainly consider a lot of factors that to determine if a patient is a candidate for a transplant, we can now be more permissive in allowing patients that maybe have more medical comorbidities or other health problems um, and get them to transplant. But generally speaking, we'll say, you know, a candidate, a patient needs to be fit enough for transplant, and that's a difficult definition. Um, I would say that a patient needs to be at least able to walk around independently for the most part. So, you know, even if they have some some medical issues, they need to have some level of independence, um, which is why, you know, when patients are admitted in the hospital getting their initial treatment, I always talk to my patients about how important it is for them to um, not get very deconditioned and to stay active and walking around so that, you know, they don't become ineligible for a transplant. But other things that we really look at is, you know, what is that, that patient's organ function? Are their kidneys working well? Is their liver working well? Do they have issues? Um, with pulmonary functions, and so before a patient is um, told whether or not they're a candidate for transplant, they do have a lot of those types of tests to determine if all their organs are, are functioning okay, and so those are some of the comorbid conditions that we take into account. Okay. And can you tell us about the different types of stem cell transplants? Um, I know this could... This could probably be a lengthy answer, but um, just basically um, the different types of stem cell transplants. Sure. And so when talking about um, stem cell transplants, we, we need to talk about, like, several different things. So the first is where are the stem cells coming from? And so we, we've, we've sort of alluded to this already, but one source of stem cell is bone marrow. The other is peripheral blood. And, and that means just, you know, blood in the veins, basically. Um, and, and the other is what's called cord blood stem cell transplant. And so those are, those are like where you can get stem cells from. And then we need to decide who are you getting those stem cells from. Is it a relative or somebody that's not related? And you already spoke about Be The Match, which, of course, is an international registry where volunteers you know, get a cheek swab and they get their DNA checked to see if they can be matches with other people. And so we can have either matched related transplants or matched unrelated transplants. Um, and so those are kind of like the general characteristics or, 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 or different subgroups of which what transplants that one can get. And I hear the term uh, haploidentical um, I know when my husband um, was going through treatment, he I heard haploidentical. And can you can you just define haploidentical for us? Um, yes, of course. And first, of course, I'm sorry that your husband had to go through all of that type of treatment. Um, so haploidentical also then gets into a little bit more detail in terms of the what we call the degree that a donor is matched to the patient. And so mm -hmm. when, when you have a, a donor, whether that's a related match or an unrelated match, we always talk about is it a perfect match? So that would be called a match unrelated or match related transplant. Is it a match at all places except for one? And so we call that a mismatch transplant. And then more recently, there's been the advent of what's called haploidentical transplantation, which 
um, really was quite revolutionary because it allowed a lot of patients that otherwise wouldn't have a donor to be candidates for transplantation. And one of the things that I should have mentioned in terms of factors that are weighed in determining if a patient is a candidate for transplant, one obvious one is, do you have a donor? And um, there, there are many patients that unfortunately don't have matches in the registry, but almost everybody has a haploidentical donor. So what does that mean? Haplo, the term haplo means half. And so these are patients, these are donors that are going to be half matched to the patient. And so, for example, every person will be a half match to their parent or to their child. Um, and so almost everybody, or to a sibling, almost everybody will have a half match donor available. And um, that has really helped to, to increase the availability. So, you know, prior to or when this was first being developed, people thought that was very um very risky because, you know, all the, all the time we talk about having a perfect match and a perfect match. And so how is it possible that, you know, somebody that's only a half match, meaning the other half of the genes don't match and they're not the same, um, how is it possible for a transplant of that type to be successful without leading to a lot of complications, in particular something that I'm sure we're going to talk about later in the, in the podcast about um, mm-hmm. graft-versus-host disease. But, but thankfully, we, we are able to um, give this type of transplant with some chemotherapy after um, the transplant is given to prevent this complication of um, of transplant from occurring and making really this transplant modality really important to increase access to transplantation to a lot of patients. Yes, and, and you're alluding to sort of the, the different pros and cons of, you know, you might be a perfect match, but I, I think from what I understand, you may... You, there may be more or less GVHD depending on the level of your match. So right. it's sort of like, again, weigh, weighing your weighing your options, I guess. Yeah, so lots of different factors yeah. need to be taken into account when deciding um, who is going to get a transplant and what transplant source you're going to, to accept. And so sometimes we have the luxury of saying, well, you know, you have mm-hmm. five siblings, two of them are perfect matches, they're all young and healthy, and sometimes, um, you know, we may only have one mismatched donor from the registry, or someone may only have a haploidentical donor option. And so all of those different transplantations come, come with different pros and cons, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you kind of briefly touched on this a little bit, but does the does the treatment prior to stem cell transplant vary depending on the risk profile of your disease or your age? And does that treatment prior have anything to do with your uh, propensity for relapse? Or has it been shown to, great. to have anything to do with the, the relapse? Yeah, no, great question. I sometimes joke, you know, I'm not a, I'm not somebody that does the bone marrow transplants, but I do treat the leukemias before then, and I always kind of joke with my colleagues, they don't care how we treat the patient as long as we send them to them in good shape and in depression, right? Um, but right. your question is really, really important. Um, and so depending on the diseases being treated, let's say for, for, for this conversation, we're going to talk about AML, um, treatment really makes a big difference, and, and it makes a difference in, in a few different ways. So the treatment itself can have a lot of side effects and toxicities, and I sort of alluded to that before. And oftentimes patients that have a diagnosis of AML um, or acute myeloid leukemia will receive a lot of very intense chemotherapy. They can 
ultimately be very debilitating for patients. And, and so that plays a really big role because in order to successfully undergo transplantation, um, a patient needs to be able to tolerate that initial chemotherapy, make it out of the hospital, and be able to live independently to some degree um, in order to be successful with transplant. So the type of chemotherapy that is given before transplant matters in that way. But the other things that really matter as well is what is the risk of the leukemia itself? And so when we diagnose somebody with AML, not all AML is the same. We divide patients depending on the genetic changes in each individual patient's leukemia to say, is this a person that has a leukemia that is very responsive to treatment and can be treated with chemotherapy only? Or is this a person that has a leukemia that's more high risk and won't respond that well to chemotherapy alone and therefore they need a transplant? And those genetic changes really have, are really important in determining whether a person um, needs a bone marrow transplant, doesn't need a bone marrow transplant, and also what type of treatment that person is given. And so all of those factors are played in into determining how to talk to the patient about their diagnosis and their prognosis and then making decisions. And, you know, depending on that risk factor that of uh, the leukemia, it also plays into the risk of relapse um, after the transplant. And so patients that have, you know, very high, what is considered high-risk AML have um, a higher risk of having their disease relapse after a transplant compared to patients that, that have lower-risk disease. And, and I guess one more factor that's really important to consider is prognostication and all those things only go so far. The most important thing when getting a patient to transplant is making sure that that person gets the transplant in the best shape possible and that their the leukemia is treated as much as possible. And sometimes patients ask me about that. They're like, well, if, you're, if I'm going to transplant in remission, why am I going to transplant? You know, you already put me in remission. Um, so you can think about the transplant almost as a vaccine to some degree where the leukemia has been taken down to the lowest level possible. We almost want to make sure that there's no leukemia detectable at all. And then the transplant is really successful in that if any leukemia starts to pop up, it'll kind of eradicate that. So it doesn't do well with very active disease. If somebody goes into transplant with very active leukemia, the transplant is not going to work. And so that's really important, going into transplant with a disease that's very well controlled in remission. Right. And you sort of brought up something about, you know, there's so many different kinds of AML and, it, you know, it's, it's really about the personalized and very uh, tailored treatment prior to even the stem cell transplant um, and getting that person ready for stem cell transplant, and depending what kind of mutations they have and, and all of that. And it's just, it's, it's very complicated. It's definitely very complicated, and in a good way, it actually has become much more complicated in the last five to ten years, which is really good, actually. So, um, you know, my grandmother had AML like three decades ago, and it, you know, when she was diagnosed, wow. it was treated in one way. There was basically like one way to treat. Um, but nowadays, we really have a lot more to offer patients. Um, so we can say, you know, if you're young and fit, we can give you this really intense chemotherapy. If you're a little bit older, we're not sure that you can handle intense chemotherapy. We can give you a combination of treatments that actually aren't as aggressive as that intense chemo, but still has a really good chance of getting a person in remission. Um, and then if we have certain genetic changes, we can offer you targeted treatments against those genetic changes 
uh, to ensure two things that are really important. One is that we're going to get that disease in remission, and two is that we can get into a remission without having to cause so many side effects. The beauty of the targeted treatments is that they are much more effective and much less toxic. Yes. Yes, it really, it really has come, like, so far in the last five years, even. Absolutely. Okay, so we we started to touch on this um, a little bit. Um, can you talk about GVHD or graft versus host disease, what it is and why it occurs? Yeah, great question. And so what's so interesting about bone marrow transplants or stem cell transplants is that we are giving a person somebody else's blood, including somebody else's immune system. And this is different than when we're giving somebody else uh, a solid organ, like a heart or lungs or liver. So when, when somebody gets a, a solid tumor, I mean a solid organ transplant, like heart, liver, et cetera, um, the, the immune system of that person that's receiving that organ can reject that organ. But with a bone marrow transplant, it's kind of the opposite. So the donor, the cells that go inside of the patient, they're the immune cells. So when they're in this, you know, the patient's body, they look around and they say, wait a minute, the skin isn't mine, these intestines aren't mine, this liver isn't mine. And so it's, it's basically a rejection of the donor of the person as opposed to the other way around where the, where the patient rejects the the, the, the transplant itself. And so graft-versus-host disease is something that has limited the success of transplants for a long time or since they started, um, but several things have thankfully improved improved that, and we can talk about that more. But um, the reason why graft-versus-host disease occurs is because you are receiving, as a, as, a, as a patient, you are receiving immune cells from somebody that's not yourself. And, and that is also the main reason why for diseases like acute leukemia, we don't do transplants from the patient themselves, not only because the patient's bone marrow is not working well, but also because um, we would be giving the person the same cells that aren't able to recognize their leukemia. So we need to give somebody else's cells to recognize the patient's leukemia and take care of it. Um, so graft disease occurs because you're getting somebody else's immune system. And the rates of GVHD vary depending on where that transplant is coming from. And so when we are doing what's called a match, where we, you know, do genetic testing on the potential donor, do genetic testing on the patient, and we say, oh, you have a, you know, 10 out of 10 or 8 out of 8 match, we're just testing a limited number of immune genes that we know really make a difference. But, of course, a person has many more genes than those. Um, and so if you're getting a transplant from a sibling, for example, you and your sibling share many more genes that we're not testing for, and so then the likelihood of having graft-versus-host disease goes down. If you're getting a transplant from somebody that's not related to you, then, of course, you share less genes in common to that person, and that increases the likelihood of having graft-versus-host disease. And then if you're receiving a donor... I mean, a transplant from a donor that isn't perfectly matched, what we say like a mismatched donor transplant, then the rates of graft-versus-host disease increase as well. Thank you for explaining that all. And I guess the question is, I know that there's like acute GVHD and chronic GVHD. Does, 
does your level or severity of GVHD predict relapse or have anything to do with relapse? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, historically, everybody says, you know, you want a little bit of GVHD. Um, mm-hmm. But the truth is that that's not necessarily the case. Um, and, and, you know, many times patients kind of wish for that. But the thing is, you can't really control how much GVHD you want. So, honestly, what we want is no GVHD, but a lot of what's called GVL, or graft versus leukemia, or graft versus tumor effect. Um, and so, certainly, you know, how, if, if a little bit of GVHD is an indication that the transplant is awake and working and whatever, I guess that, that, that's a good thing. But it, but it doesn't necessarily correlate because those T cells or those cells that are the immune cells that are attacking the patient, they can attack that patient and be, you know, lead to very, very severe graft versus disease. But if they're not attacking the leukemia also, then it doesn't really, really matter. Those are different cells within the, within, within the transplant. And so, we prefer to see no graft versus host disease and a lot of graft versus leukemia. Okay. And is there is there anything that is currently approved for treatment that is being used to reduce the risk of relapse at, at this point in time? Um, so there's a lot of things that are being studied. Um, I would say mm-hmm. the thing that's probably the most advanced is the use, the use of um, medications against certain genetic mutations after transplant. The the most established probably is for partic- for patients that receive transplant for chronic myeloid leukemia. They will probably receive at least to some degree um, treatment with the same medications that they received before transplant called tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and these include medicines like dasatinib or imatinib. Um, and then for patients that have AML that have um, mutations in a gene called FLT3, I would say many, many centers use FLT3 to therapy afterwards. Um, but there's lots of different treatment approaches that are being studied after transplant to predict relapse, but not, not, not like there's not a true standard as to this is what every single place does. Right. But there's lots, lots and lots of studies going on, it sounds like. Yes, for sure. Okay. Um, there's, um, there's studies, you know, specifically looking at those genetic mutations that I was talking about before. So there's definitely studies looking at blocking, um, you know, the, the genes called FLT3 after transplant because those, those are pills that are relatively easy to take or blocking um, a mutation called IDH with, with pills is also relatively easy to take, but there's others that we can talk about too. Mm-hmm. And I was reading about donor lymphocyte infusions. Um, can you tell us a little, about, a little bit about how donor lymphocyte infusions are being used and how those are being used to reduce relapse risk? Yeah, sure. So uh, donor lymphocyte infusion, or DLI, is sometimes um, described to patients as kind of like an immune boost. And so you will um, take more cells from the person that gave you the transplant in an effort to kind of wake up the transplant to help it better fight the leukemia. And so what a donor lymphocyte infusion is made of is basically um, a lot of a certain type of immune cell called a T cell. And T cells are really important in 
um, producing that GVL effect we've been talking about, the graft versus leukemia. It is those T cells <laughs> that are really the medication that's being given to the patient, and it's those T cells that literally recognize the leukemia cells as something that's foreign and that needs to be destroyed. And, some, and so in some cases where a patient is maybe showing, showing early signs of, of relapsing, or even in cases where a patient has already relapsed, um, we will use donor lymphocyte infusions to help a patient get back into remission, um, but really most importantly, staying in remission, um, oftentimes um, after having, having received some chemotherapy. Okay. And I know that measurable, well, it, it's, I guess, called minimal or measurable residual disease, or MRD. That's talked about a lot uh, as a tool being used in AML and other cancers um, to measure the disease or what's left of the disease. Um, can you talk about how that's being used as a tool to predict chances of relapse either before or after a transplant? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm actually going to take one second to just explain what we really mean by minimal residual disease or MRD. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when we, when we try to tell a patient, you know, or determine if a patient is in remission, what historically we do for leukemia has been to do a bone marrow biopsy, look at that bone marrow biopsy under the microscope, and based on the fact that, you know, the pathologist sees or doesn't see leukemia, we say the person is or is not in remission. You can also get a sense of if a person is in remission if their complete blood count um, levels are normal. So, obviously, if a bone marrow is working properly, the, the patient is going to have normal levels of white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. Now, what we understand with diseases like AML is that all it takes for a disease to come back is one cell. And so you can imagine a pathologist's eyes aren't good enough, not that there's anything wrong with pathologists, but to find one cell in a million. And so the, that's where the concept of MRD or minimal residual disease comes in and is really important. Um, and so basically there's some techniques that can detect, you know, one cell in a million to help to say, are there any leukemia cells that we can find at all in this person's body. And so MRD, like the use of MRD, has been really important in helping to determine when a patient goes to transplant for diseases like acute lymphoblastic leukemia or ALL. And so really, you know, the, the standard of care for that disease is to get a patient to be what's called MRD negative where, you know, not only are their blood counts normal, not only is that bone marrow biopsy normal, but when we do these sophisticated tests for MRD detection, that's negative too. For AML, it's still an evolving uh, field of research, but it's certainly starting to be used more commonly. And so one example of how it's being used is, remember before we were talking about dividing patients with AML into groups depending on those genetic changes that they have. And so not that long ago, literally just a few years ago, patients that were considered good risk 
and had mutations in certain genes. The one that comes to mind um, as being used most often is one, for example, called NPM1. Those patients generally were told, you have good risk leukemia, all we need to do is give you chemotherapy and you don't need to have a transplant. Then, of course, we were frustrated because some of those patients had relapsed and we wouldn't necessarily know what, what brought that on. So now we'll use MRD specifically to follow those patients and to help determine if those patients have a higher risk of relapse um, and if those patients should then be taken to transplant. And so in the case of, for example, NPM1, we'll say, okay, you probably don't need a transplant, but let's measure that NPM1 gene by these really sophisticated, highly sensitive tools. And if that NPM1 mutation does not go away completely with chemotherapy, then we recommend a transplant um, to prevent that leukemia really from coming back. And so it's made our decision-making, like we were saying before, definitely much more nuanced and complicated, but I think ultimately it'll help patients, patients do better. But in general, how is MRD being utilized in AML? It is still an evolving, an evolving field, but definitely something that I think will become more and more important to help us better, better predict who's going to relapse both before and after transplant. Yeah, you mentioned MRD is a standard of care in ALL, and you're trying to achieve MRD negativity. Is that just getting it below a certain threshold, or is that presence right. of no leukemic cells? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, I, and um, depending on what study you see and what disease you're, you're treating, um, Mm-hmm. It'll be different, and for ALL, it's not that it's fully negative. It's a certain threshold, and for AML, again, it's, like, still being defined, and so depending on the paper that you read and the study that was published, they use different thresholds and different tests for measuring, um, whether it's from the blood or the or the bone marrow, et cetera, and so definitely something to, to keep your eye out for additional research to really clarify how MRD should be used and if it can be utilized for every single patient. Okay, yeah, and do you see that MRD and AML, do you see that becoming standard of care um, in the next few years, or do you think that that has kind of a a longer time frame? Um, I think that for sure we'll be using MRD. I think that we'll be using MRD much, much more in AML. There's there's two things that I think really need to happen to make it more standard of care. One is that we need to have more reliable form of testing for MRD in all AML subtypes, not just those that have those specific mutations. And, and those tests can still take a long time. So utilizing it in your everyday practice is still challenging because it takes a long time for a lot of those assays to come back. Um, and the other thing that we really need to be able to really utilize is to its full potential in AML to make sure that we have therapies that can get rid of MRD. And so, for example, there are some patients that have very high-risk mutations in AML. And for those patients, let's say we don't even have targeted therapies for them, and so we just have kind of standard old-fashioned chemotherapy and all we have is to say, well, we gave the best chemotherapy that we have. This is the best remission that we can achieve today. And so knowing whether that person is MRD positive or not actually wouldn't even help us because there's nothing that we could have that we could do further to get that MRD from going from positive to negative before transplant. And so 
we also need to really improve in our treatment options to be able to really say, okay, you know, the best thing is to do, um, is to give medication to get the patient to MRD negative state, but, the, but for many leukemia patients, we just don't have that option. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your clinical trial that you're working on. Uh, you currently have a phase two clinical trial that's studying the use of Jacophy or ruxolitinib to see if it's helpful in reducing the risk of relapse, relapse after transplant. Can you tell us about the drug, Jacophy, how it works, and what it targets? Yeah, sure. So um, Jacophy is another one of these drugs called tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So basically it's a medicine that blocks um, an enzyme or a pathway inside of cells that is overactive. And so Jacophy is a medication or ruxolitinib that blocks uh, a molecular enzyme inside of the cells called JAK2 and also JAK1. Um, and it was initially approved for a disease called myelofibrosis, which is a type of chronic leukemia um, that belongs to the group of leukemias called myeloproliferative neoplasm. And it's, it's really good at improving patient symptoms because patients with this disease have a lot of symptoms, like itching and fevers and night sweats, and also reducing the size of their skin. Now, GBH, um, now, Jagathy is also interesting because uh, it's really like a very powerful anti-inflammatory. So that molecule called JAK2 that lives inside of cells um, is, is plays an important role in um, the production of these molecules called cytokines that lead to inflammation. Um, and so patients that have GVHD have elevated levels of inflammation and activated um, inflammatory response in their body. And so... Jacophy is a medicine that also has been studied and now approved for graft-versus-host disease. And so it can, be, it can be used both for certain conditions before transplant, but also to treat graft-versus-host disease after transplant. Well, that's great. So it's like a dual target. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And do you have any preliminary results you can share about the trial? Um, yeah, so, you know, we, 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 we did the clinical trial um, utilizing Jacophy after transplant in patients that were over the age of 60, initially just with AML, but then we opened the study as well to patients with a condition called myelodysplastic syndrome, um, for which, you know, many participants also get transplant, with, with two goals. One was to see if this medication could also help prevent relapse by turning off, you know, many pathways that are sometimes overactive inside of cancer cells. And, and our other hope was that the use of this medication would also help to prevent graft-versus-host disease, since we already knew that this medication um, was helpful in treating graft-versus-host disease in participants that had been previously treated with, with several other medications. And so we... Um, have enrolled almost all of our patients in this study. Um, hopefully, it'll be done in the in the next couple of months, and so hopefully next time we talk, we have more data. But from from the preliminary information we have from the study and talking to all the doctors that have put patients on this on this study, I think the most notable thing is that the uh, rates of graft versus host disease have really been 
very low. And and more importantly is that the the degree of graft-versus-host disease has been um, also very minimal. So graft-versus-host disease is graded on a scale of not so severe to so severe, like grade one through grade four. And most patients that have gotten graft-versus-host disease have gotten just mild graft-versus-host disease. And that's really important because when we're thinking about how tolerable transplants are, and when we think about the things that really impact quality of life for patients after transplants, and when we're talking to our patients, especially our older patients, about whether or not they're good candidates for transplant, one of the things that we really worry about is graft-versus-host disease because although GVHP can be mild in many patients, it really can be very serious, it can be life-threatening, and it can really alter patients' quality of life in a permanent way. And so I'm really excited to see the preliminary results that were presented by my colleague, Dr. DeFilippe, um, in this past year's um, tandem meeting, um, which is a big meeting for you know, bone marrow transplant study. And I can't wait to see what the final results show in terms of in terms of survival for our patients and um, rates of graft-versus-host disease. Yeah, that, that sounds very exciting. I mean, I know graft-versus-host disease is, is very challenging for, for everyone, and that's such a such an incredibly big part and challenge of the stem cell transplant process. So that that's really exciting. And hopefully we can have you back on to hear about the update. <laughs> Absolutely. And I know you're in phase two. So when you get to phase two in a clinical trial, what does that mean and what needs to happen in order to move to the next phase? That is such a good question. And so when you're a student learning about clinical trials, you know, you learn about phase one, phase two, and phase three, and it all seems pretty straightforward. You know, phase one is when you test the safety of the drug. Phase two, you start to get some efficacy signals. And then phase three is bigger studies. Oftentimes you think about randomized studies um, to really decide, you know, is this drug better than whatever is available now to get it FDA approved. Now, what's difficult, honestly, in the space of um, blood cancers where they're more rare and it's harder to do these bigger studies is that sometimes after a phase two study, that's kind of sufficient to change the standard of care, but, but not always. And so for this, for this study in particular, um, my colleague, Dr. DeFilippe, who's a bone marrow transplant specialist at Mass General, is going to do a study um, with uh, a collaborative group, so basically, um, a, you know, a bigger network of of sites to open, um, you know, to open across the country and test if we can use Jacasi or Ruxolitinib after transplant, um, really as a strategy to prevent um, graft versus host disease from happening. And so that's, you know, once you have like preliminary results from one study, then you decide um, is this worth pursuing, and if so, you know. Um, let's do a bigger study to really confirm our findings because oftentimes in small studies you'll get a result and then if you do it in a bigger study you see, oh, maybe you know, when we include many more patients, actually that effect wasn't as big as we thought that it was. And so it's important really to get a confirmation from bigger studies. Right. Well, yes, let's, let's cross our fingers that that's happened, that that's how happens and it moves Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, um, I have a question about um, 
CAR-T cell therapy um, and the use of CAR-T cell therapy. It's definitely a hot topic of discussion, and I know everyone is hoping to see positive results come out of that modality in research in AML. Um, can CAR-T cells possibly be used as another immunotherapy option to potentially reduce the risk of relapse? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. I mean, I think that one of the goals of bone marrow transplant doctors for forever has been to make transplantation a more precise science. Right now, if you think about it, similarly to kind of like our old-fashioned chemotherapy, a bone marrow transplant basically, you know, replaces the entire bone marrow of a patient and gives them a brand-new transplant. But what if, instead of doing that, um, we can just give the cells themselves that are going to attack the leukemia without having to put a patient through this whole process. Um, and so CAR T cells, for that reason, have been really exciting, especially for diseases like lymphomas and in the leukemia world um, for diseases like ALL or acute lymphoblastic leukemia where CAR T cells have really helped both to get people into remission after transplant and also just to get them into remission and then avoid transplant altogether. And so there's definitely many studies now trying to look at good targets um, for CAR T cell therapy for AML. And, and, and so hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll get some exciting results of those studies and we can start to use CAR T cells for AML. But there are no CAR T cells for AML at the moment. Right. Yes, and I know that that's an active area and changing rapidly. So hopefully there'll be more research to come on that horizon. Absolutely. Are there any other current trials that are showing promising results in the area of uh, relapse or preventing relapse? Um, yes, I think I all of the studies that are looking... What, what did you say, sorry? Sorry, I just said after transplant. Uh, yes, I think that you know, studies that that start treatment based on changes like, for example, the detection of MRD are important. Um, there are studies looking at different FLIC3 inhibitors or IDH inhibitors after transplant um, to see if we can uh, prevent relapse in those patients. So those are therapies that are given preemptively um, to prevent relapse. You know, other things that I think are, are exciting, of course, CAR T cells and, and giving different types of transplants um, that, that use, uh, you know, different combination of stem cells. We sort of talked about this a little bit, but if instead of giving just, you know, a blanket, you know, here's, let's take away your, your bone marrow transplant completely and give you a brand new bone marrow, if we could be a little bit more precise in giving, you know, more of the cells that are important for, um, preventing relapse and more of the cells that help a patient defend themselves against infections and less of the cells that um, cause graft-versus-host disease, then, then we can, you know, give, give transplants to patients in a, in a more precise kind of way. And so there's been some studies looking at those kind of different combinations of cells um, to, to help, you know, make the transplant more tolerable with less graft-versus-host disease um, some of those, those studies are called like ORCA T cells, for example, where there's, you know, several different cells that are given like that to, to make the transplant more precise. 
Okay, great. Okay, and this is kind of an opinion question. Um, what's your opinion on pre-transplant treatment and the current best options to set a patient up for success before transplant? What's the best thing to, to set up a patient for success? Is that what you said? Yeah, before transplant. You know, I think really sitting down with a patient and, and going over the, um, you know, explanation of the patient's own disease, explaining kind of what the options are with and without a transplant, what the um, what is involved in the actual transplant itself, the side effects of the transplant, life before and after transplant, all of that education I really think that is critical to get the patient and their family members to be really prepared to handle the transplant. Because although transplant is a really important modality uh, of treatment, and it really is, is the reason why we can cure so many patients with AML, it is not easy no matter, no matter what type of transplant a patient receives. And, the, and so I think that really that education and preparation really sets somebody up for success after transplant. Um, and then in the months leading up to transplant, you know, of course, in addition to taking the medications that are prescribed, I think just being informed and asking questions about, like, why am I getting this medicine or this other medicine or how are you monitoring me, kind of alluded to this a little bit at the beginning of our conversation, but making sure that the patient is able to remain as active and as, and as healthy as, as they are able to is really, really important. Um, and one of the things I always tell my patients when they leave the hospital after their first diagnosed with AML, you know, we diagnose them with AML, they're in the hospital for a few weeks with us, is go outside, fill your batteries, get emotionally and physically ready for that transplant. And it's not just, you know, I'm just something that I'm saying just for no reason. I mean, I think it really makes a really big difference for the patients to be both emotionally and physically um, at their best before they go to transplant because that is going to be a long hospitalization. And I think um, that, that really helps patients to get prepared. Right. And there, I know there's been discussions about this. I was listening to Dr. Robos and Dr. Kadia discuss this um, on a discussion the other day. And do you think eventually there's there's a possibility that transplant may go away, that there will be other curative options available, or that we'll really just still be trying to get patients successfully to transplant? Again, that's more just of a general answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, just anecdotally, I mean, I'll tell you, when I first started um, my training, um, I thought that I was going to be a bone marrow transplant doctor. And then when I went through my subspecialty training, I was like, no, the excitement is all before transplant. You know, there's all these new drugs that are being studied and, um, you know, different immunotherapies that are being studied and whatnot. And so truly my hope is that we we won't depend on transplant to cure our patients, um, and so so hopefully hopefully in ten years you know we'll be using transplant less. But I think along with that, because um, I know some of my transplant colleagues will be upset of me if I just say hopefully we never have to give a transplant again. Um, hopefully transplant can become much more precise. I know that for for trans for the transplant community it's been really important to try to make their treatment much more tolerable. And so I think these different technologies that either use specialized cells like the CAR T cells um, or the idea of 
being able to pick and choose the cells that are going to help prevent relapse but not cause things like Graffers-Associates disease um, have, have really great potential to make transplant um, you know, more precise and much and much easier to tolerate, so that we can, so that we really want to use it for everybody. Um, and and so, I think there's a lot of progress to be made, but hopefully, we'll be using less transplant and more targeted therapies. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point. I mean, I think that's that's a hopeful viewpoint um, because I think there is just so much. There's so much research happening, so many drugs being explored, and so many that have come into, um, you know, that have been FDA approved in the last uh, just five years. So, absolutely. Um, even if that means that it's a combination of transplant and those drugs working together, um, that would be great just to reduce the toxicity and the challenge of, of the transplant itself. I hope so. So one thing I just wanted to ask you, and um, then we'll take a couple uh, questions from callers. Um, What's the difference between the AML doctor and the transplant doctor, and how are their different roles defined? I mean, I guess at what point does the transplant doctor step in and sort of take over um, with the patient? I'm so glad you asked that. I'm so glad you asked that, and that can be confusing. And I will say one thing. Um, different hospitals, different centers have different practices. And so it's not, it's not exactly the same for every place a patient goes. Um, in many mm-hmm. centers, especially those that are, that are, you know, much more specialized, there is a clear separation between this is the leukemia team and this is the transplant team. Um, and so, for example, at our institution, uh, the leukemia doctor is responsible for everything that happens to that patient before transplant. So the giving the chemotherapy, getting a person in remission and all of that. Of course, we talk and our work very closely with the transplant doctors, um, how things are going and to help in the, in the planning process of the transplant. And then once the person goes to transplant, um, and this is actually a sad part of my job, but it's a good part of my job, um, then the patients are, are, are no longer my patients. Um, and they just, you know, literally almost transfer their care fully to the transplant doctors, and the transplant team will take care of the patients through transplant and then after transplant, and then they really only come back to the leukemia doc if, unfortunately, they have a relapse. But in other centers, it's a little bit different where, you know, the leukemia doctors take care of the patients before the transplant, and then the transplant doctors take care of the patients for maybe the first three months or 100 days after transplant, and maybe they are then, you know, um, sent back to the leukemia doctors to follow them after that. And so there's, there's going to be some differences um, in, in, in the centers. And then there may be some places where there is no difference, actually, and the leukemia doctor also does bone marrow transplants. And so I think it's important when, you know, establishing care at a facility to, to really ask those questions, like who's going to do the – who's going to be responsible for my care when I'm getting a transplant and who's going to be responsible for my care getting, getting leukemia care because it really varies by center. Okay. Great. Thank, thank you for clarifying that for us. Okay. So we're going to take a couple of caller questions. 
If you have questions about anything Dr. Hobbs discussed today, you can call into 515-602-9728. And once you're on the call and ready to ask your question, press 1 on your keypad. And it looks like we do have a question coming in from that ends in 1159. And I'm going to unmute that caller. Uh, caller Hello, that ends you. in 1159. Go ahead. Hi. Thank you. Um, my question Hi. is, in your experience in treating patients leading up to transplant, are there any specific things you've seen in patients, you've seen patients proactively do during this phase that are successful to them? and helps them prepare for transplant and possibly even reduce the risk of complications? Uh, great question, and it doesn't have a simple answer. I think some, some of it I talked about a little bit before. Um, the first thing that I really think is so important is for the patient and their family to get as much information from their care team as possible. It sounds trivial, but it really isn't. Their treatment for leukemia can be so complex that that really, you know, sitting down with your with your physician and, and, and going over like every step of the way, what treatment am I getting? How are we gonna know it's working? When are we gonna make the decision to go to transplant? What are the side effects? What can I do and not do? All of those things are really, really important. Um, the other thing that I really talked that I that I talked about that I think is also super important is leukemia treatment can be really difficult. And so I don't mean to make this sound like this recommendation is an easy recommendation, it is not. But the healthier and more active a patient can remain leading up to transplant, honestly, the better the outcomes are going to be for that patient during transplant and after transplant. And this is difficult, and of course, there's going to be some days where all the patient wants to do is be in bed, and they're totally allowed that. Um, but take advantage of those days where, you know, the patient is feeling well and trying to get up, walk around, stay active. Um, functional status makes such a big difference in how patients are able to tolerate treatment as well, and also not to mention, you know, being um, physically active, going outside, getting fresh air whenever the, the patients can, also really helps to relieve some of the anxiety and depression that come with um, such a severe diagnosis. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for your question. Okay, and we have another call coming in that ends in seven zero seven four zero one. Go ahead, caller. Yeah, hi, thank you. I am just wondering, um, you talked about Jacophee and what side effects might be associated with that. Uh, great question. And so Jacophee in general is a relatively easy to take medication. Um, before transplantation, one of the common things that we see is weight gain, actually. Um, some patients can have a little bit of, of GI symptoms, maybe a little bit of diarrhea, but it's pretty mild. Post-transplant, one of the biggest issues and limitations of using Jacophy in patients is um, that it, it can lower blood counts. And so in the immediate post-transplant days, patients already have low blood counts, and so help having patients be able to start Jacophy and stay on Jacophy is sometimes challenging. Okay. Thanks for your question. Thank you. OK, 
Okay, thanks for your question. And in order to wrap it up on time today, that's all the time we have for caller questions. Dr. Hobbs, thank you so much for joining us today. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity with your time and your willingness to share your expertise with us. We would love to have you on the show again, um, especially to hear updates about this trial and hopefully um, to hear how it's progressed. And we wish you all Thank the you best so much in for your practice. Yeah, we wish you all the best in your practice and your research endeavors. Thank you and so much. thank you again for coming on the show. And we hope everyone has a great day. Thank you all for attending. Thanks for listening to Health Tree Podcast for AML. Join us next time to learn more about what's happening in AML research and what it means for you.